the chaos of change, genetically modified foods, increased agricultural yield, changes in society. Join in the conversation with Amalia Legizamon. It's on the tip of your tongue. Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We are here today with Amalia Legazimon. She is Associate Professor of Sociology at Tulane University, and she is the author of the book, Seeds of Power, Environmental Justice and Genetically Modified Soybeans in Argentina. Welcome, Amalia. Thank you, Liz, for having me here. It's a huge pleasure. So we're so happy to have you. I want to tell you that for an academic book, this was so readable. I really like that. Thank you. (laughs) You're very welcome. It was totally the purpose, so I'm glad that that came through. Yes, it definitely did. And so because it's an academic book, I want to talk about it especially because it's the sort of thing that people might not read because they think it's an academic book Mm -hmm. because it's Duke University Press. So they might say, oh, you know. Boring. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So I want to say from the beginning, that is not the case. It's really, really fascinating. So tell me how the the sociology of this made you decide that this was going to be what you would you would write about the reason why i started writing about this it was very academic is because i was in graduate school in new york city and i needed a topic for my dissertation <laughs> pretty much i was very much into studying environmental issues and and particularly environmental social movements in argentina and right at the time when i was due to have a topic I was taking this class on environmental sociology, and right at this time, there was this massive conflict, this massive agrarian conflict in Argentina that emerged in 2008 around taxation, right? Soybean export taxes. So suddenly in the Argentine media, the news about soybeans exploded, right? Soybean producers took over the streets for a full three months. They blockaded um, major cities, um, major roads, and, and suddenly we all, we all Argentines found out that this crop that was pre- previously not even talked about, we, we all learned together that soybeans had expanded over the whole countryside. And Argentina is an agrarian country, right? Argentina is a country that historically produces food for export, but our pride is beef, our pride is wheat. And, and now suddenly soybeans, and it, the question was like, what is this soybean for? Who is eating this thing? And and, and how what, did it happen? How <laughs> did it happen exactly? Like how did it, and how did it happen so smoothly and quickly and so silently? Like how did this massive transformation happen without most people not even knowing about this? Uh, and at the same time, while I was learning about this, I was also very curious about genetically modified crops in 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 particular, right? Like in New York City at this time. Michael Pollan had published his book, um, 
Um, omnivores dilemma. But the omnivores dilemma, exactly, right? So I had read that. I had read in defense of food. Everyone in New York City, well, it was the time of Occupy Wall Street. People were taking over the farms, like like the oh, small gardens. So there was a lot of talk about uh, urban gardening, um, growing local food. The anti-GMO movement was becoming quite strong. I mean, or at least strong in my mind. So suddenly the question also became, how is it that my country, Argentina, has transitioned into planting soybeans? These soybeans are genetically modified, and no one is talking about it. <laughs> how, how no one is talking about it? How no one is protesting against these genetically modified crops that are supposed to be so terrible? So that, that became like the key question, right? How is it that my country has, become, has embraced this technology that is quite untested, that is at the heart of conflicts in, in, uh, in agrarian countries around the world, like in Mexico, in Brazil, in Germany, in France, in the UK, in right. India, right? And, and in my country, it just happened. So that became the key question, right? Try to understand why. Originally, uh, the question was how to understand that there is no movement. And, and here is why the question is academic, right? Like, how do you fit it in the theories of right. social movements and environmental sociology and the sociology of development? But by the time I landed in, in the field, I realized that the question was, if not useless, quite stupid. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was already too late to answer that question. Well, it was worse. It was a naive question because uh, by the time that I arrived and I started asking farmers and soybean producers and and all people that are truly involved in agriculture, they would look at me and be like, what are you talking about? There's nothing wrong with this new technology. This is the best agriculture in the world. We do, like, aren't you proud? We do the best agriculture in the world. <laughs> so with time, I mean, it was a big slap in the face. I had to learn how to rephrase the question and try to also navigate um, as, and we can talk about this later, but how to navigate the silences around the, the cost, right, and, and the negative impact that does come with the expansion of soybeans. But, but no one was talking about anything that was bad. Everything was great. The only problem was the government that was overtaxing the soybean producers, and they were the drivers of Argentina, Argentina's economy. They were bringing on this money, and now the government just wanted to take a big chunk so that became the, the conflict that, that was interesting to study then. So, so tell me, do the people of Argentina eat soybeans? No, they don't. <laughs> <laughs> and that's also when another reason why most people, like, when I asked, they totally shrugged it off because they were like, like here, for example, in the United States, a lot of people are concerned about genetically modified crops because they don't want to eat them. Most people really do not know when they're eating genetically true, modified yeah. crops. Like I ask mm -hmm. my students all the time, like I do this test, like tell me a genetically modified food and they start like, oh, strawberries, peaches, tomatoes. It's like, no, 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 none of those things are actually, like, I mean, the things that we buy in the market that are genetically modified are, have components. Corn. Corn, exactly. <laughs> but you don't even see it, right? right? Like, so it's not right. even something that you fully recognize as right. corn. It's the corn, it's the soybeans, right? But all those have been transformed and modified, like, uh, put together into a food product. It's not the edamame that you buy exactly. for, for the table. Exactly, yes. right? The problem is not your soy milk. Right. Right? There's not all these soybeans that we're growing. It's, it's not meant for... 
I mean, a, a lot of it is is meant for edible oil that then goes into chocolate, right, and all the things that that need baked and then, goods. Exactly, mm-hmm. um, um, baby's milk formula, uh, formula, uh-huh. right? But most of of the soy that we grow actually goes to animal feed, mm-hmm. so it is to it is for food, but through many stages of of the chain, right? So Argent, like the people that would ask in Argentina about the soybeans and about genetic, are you concerned about genetically modified foods? They're like, we don't eat this stuff. Why would I be concerned? Like the Chinese eat it, mm-hmm. right? All, all the soybeans that are grown in Argentina are mostly shipped to China to feed cattle. So it is, I guess it's easy not to be involved if you don't see it in your own body. And also because Argentina is it's an urban country. So it is this... Uh, oxymoron that is happening, that it is an agrarian country that lives out, like its economy is heavily based in agro-exports. So it's 60%, between 50 and 60% of everything that Argentina exports are, agro-ex- are agro-foods. Mm-hmm. Uh, a third of it is only soybeans, but 95% of the people live in a city. So it's this uh, weird situation in which it's disconnected. It's a totally disconnected. People can feel proud of their agro-export, but then... They're no, not attached to it in any way. Not at all. They don't live in the countryside. They don't see how farming is done. And, and this is what I explore in the book, is that even the people who are in charge of farming, they don't live in the countryside. Everyone lives in the city. They use this... Uh, super cool, cutting-edge technologies, satellites, telephones, this uh, fabulous machinery to farm. So the disconnect, the distance between the farming activity, right? Like the, the getting dirty <laughs> with the thing and, and, and the food production is huge. Um, and that serves to create this mental disconnect, right, that I, I explained throughout the book of how you can be distanced then from, from the costs, particularly of agrochemical spraying, and just think and or enjoy the benefits that come with it, which is money, certainly economic growth, foreign income from the exports, and the the modernization that comes with it, which for uh, Argentina, like it ties back to all its history and, and it's huge, right? To think that we are now modern again, right? We're at the cutting edge of technological innovation. So did you... Well, I'm, I'm asking this, though I haven't read the book. I know, <laughs> I know that you did this. So when you talk to the actual farmers, yes, the people on the ground getting dirty, yes, how did they express their feelings about it? Besides wanting you to be proud of them, did they also give you um, a sort of a, a negative side, or was that only the women who did that? There was truly no negative side in the sense that the benefits were emphasized up to completely and the negatives were denied or or dis- dismissed. Minimized or Minimized, exactly. Mm-hmm. So when I would say, well, aren't you concerned about fumigations? And they'd be like, no, why? Like we use, like the agrochemicals that we use, and in a way this is true. Mm-hmm. The agrochemicals that we use now in conjunction with the genetically modified seeds, this glyphosate-based herbicide, the Roundup, mm-hmm. right, is actually less toxic than the things that we used before. So we are using, and in addition, and this is a true cutting-edge technological innovation, 
in addition, we're using um, this direct seeding machinery, which doesn't disturb the soil. So these problems of erosion that we had, now we don't have, right? So this is a true technology for sustainability. So we are bringing environmental mm -hmm. sustainability. Mm -hmm. um, I think the key problem is that, and I hope this comes across in the book, is that I think the key problem is the, the disjuncture between what the agronomists and the producers and, and the lab scientists who are doing all these testings in agrochemicals is that they are doing this very short-term test, mm -hmm. right? And what's happening, so, so, so I'm sure that whoever is testing glyphosate in a lab that tests the impact or the effect of this glyphosate-based uh, glyphosate herbicide over 30 days on some embryo rat. I, I, I'm sure that, that the risks or the hazards are quite minimal, mm -hmm. but what it is means is that rural communities in Argentina, and I'm sure here in the United States too, have been fumigated with this agrochemical now for years. Yeah, right? the cumulative effect has it's not been studied. Exactly, mm -hmm. right? It is not studied, it is dismissed, and, and there are no, there are very little ways or no ways for local doctors to trace this thing because no one really wants to talk about it. Right. Because this is the main source of economic income for these towns. And these towns are doing really well. So why are you going to destroy that? So what has it meant to the way of life of the farmer? How has that changed? Is that only been improved or have certain things that were part of the farmer's life gone away? <laughs> well, I think that for Argentina, we Argentines don't know how, and this is quite interesting, like there's no romantic pastoral, mm -hmm. right? This idea that of the, the farmer or... Now, Argentina has been ever since, and this is what I trace across uh, along in the book because I'm trying to understand how this present links to its past. And Argentina has been a capitalist, uh, it has grown food in capitalist ways ever since the country became a nation, mm -hmm. right? So this idea that, um, like this romantic idea of the campesino, the smallhold farmer tied to the land that has, that uses this traditional or, or indigenous ways of growing, does not exist. Um, in Argentina, particularly the Pampas, which is the region that I studied, which is the large agro-export region, has been populated by European immigrants that became chacareros, gringos, uh, right? And, and so these are Europeans that come into Argentina and with the big immigration between 1870 and 1920. They populate the countryside and they bring with them their European ways. Uh -huh. uh, so they are growing crops. In, in a heavily mechanized way. And, and that is part of the history of Pampas food growing. Uh -huh. So what is happening now with the adoption of the technological package of genetically modified crop is only one of the latest innovation. It's not a total disruption in the way of life of these people. They have always been growing crops with the goal of increasing profitability. Mm -hmm. So that is always the goal of it. The food that they grow, it's always for export. I mean, of course, certainly before they were growing wheat and, and that wheat entered the domestic market, but it's not that they 
had this farm to feed themselves and their family. They right. all farm. It was never subsistence farming. Not at all. It has always been very, very large scale. Like we're talking 400, 500, 600,000 hectares. Mm -hmm. uh, you need machinery to do that. And the goal, uh, and this is quite interesting, is that they always, the goal always was how can you make enough money to, to send your children to the city? Uh -huh. Right? How can you send your children to the city so they can have an education and get out? Right? <laughs> okay. So now I want to ask you, now that this book is written, what do you think you learned? And what did you learn? Oh. You know, not what's in the book. Okay. But what, you know, how has that changed you? How have you become a different Amalia? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think what it has taught me is that um, want to be, I hope, to be more patient because I wasn't fully aware of how long the process is. Mm -hmm. For me, it has been multiple years from writing dissertation to then coming here to New Orleans, getting a job at Tulane, writing articles and teaching, and then putting the book together and then writing, revising, rewriting, like... It takes so long. <laughs> I mean, I had to, at some point, I'm like, okay, this is done, right? It's like, no, now you rewrite it. <laughs> so that has told me that, like, I, I hope that in the future, as of now, I'm thinking, okay, what comes next? I'm trying to remind myself, this may take another four years, five years, six, mm -hmm. eight. I mean, <laughs> hope not, but it takes a long time. So if you decided mm. to do another one. Yes. Would you do it about what's around you now, or would you do something else in Argentina? Well, I'm hoping something is in the movement now, okay. so it's fascinating. Okay. Uh, I've been uh, quite lucky to have the support from Rebecca Snedeker at the New Orleans Center for the Gulf South, mm -hmm. and in addition to my all the old support that I always have from uh, School of Liberal Arts and the Stone Center for Latin American Studies, I'm trying to think about how do I bring this together, and I receive funds to put together this class, Sociology of Food and Agriculture, with the goal of looking into the connections of the Gulf South and Latin America. Oh, well, so, there's so many connections. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so what I'm, I'm thinking, what I would like to see is to explore into how, and I don't know how to put this together because it's very early on, but I'm very curious into looking into what are the climate change consequences of large-scale agriculture on the Mississippi River Delta and the Paraná River Delta in Argentina, which are, I'm learning, quite similar geological formations. Mm. And they are all, I mean, this was more the case for uh, New Orleans in the past. Uh, but Before the Corps of Engineers took over. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, because what happens for in Argentina around the Paraná River Delta is the heart of the export sector. is where the oil processing, the soybean oil processing factories are, and where the big ships that ship soybeans to China are. And, and this is the area where, in the countryside, right, in that area is where all the soybeans are grown. And for here in New Orleans, I'm learning that we have these factories where we create the nitrogen for fertilizer mm -hmm. that then is sprayed in the Midwest. And then we receive here at the, at the, at the bottom, at the foot of the Mississippi River, all, all the... The waste, the runoff, all yes. the runoff, right? Yes. All the fertilizer runoff that is creating these massive dead zones. 
Too bad we can't just collect it again and send it back and up send there. It back. <laughs> yeah, but the interesting thing then is like I will be very curious to see into how this how the flows of these ecosystems both are impacted by large scale agriculture, but then also give life mm-hmm. because they bring all this money. It's never simple. It's never simple. So this is the other thing that I truly learned uh, from writing this book is that it's not simple. It's very complex. And I struggled a lot through the book because many other books, or m- I think that most other people, particularly sociologists, we become enamored by the movements and we become enamored by the solutions. But really when you turn around, it's like, this is a mess. And there are no clear, cl- clear-cut solutions. And they are very, and particularly for, particularly for Latin American countries, for Argentina, that are so tied to natural resource extraction, and this is also the case for the Gulf South, yes. right? How do you get rid of oil business? How do you get rid of... It's very difficult. I mean, there are all these things that we want, that we can see how they are necessary in order to have a sustainable future, but the structural constraint, the, ba- the political and economic barriers to that change are huge, and the cultural ones, which is something that I highlight in the book, is that because some... Some, like I think that the problem with activism or like sociologists in general, and, and I've, I fall prey of this, that we think we know what the solution is, uh-huh. and we, then we show up to people and you're like, don't you see you're harming people? And it's very complex. And it's not as simple as what people want it to be. Yeah. I, when I was reading the book, the whole time I kept thinking of the oil industry and how it affects the fishermen, mm-hmm. and yet those fishermen have excellent boats, mm-hmm. not because they make their money from fishing, but because they rent those boats and the use of those boats to the oil companies. Exactly. And, of course, now you're watching the oil industry just go down the tubes because the price of oil is so low and all the other problems. And you see that affecting the same people that you're trying to protect, but you can't ways of life change. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, people always in economics talk about the buggy whip example. And once we changed over to cars, all those buggy whip makers went out of business. Yes. And and, and that's part of the cycle of things. Certainly. And, and, and I am all for change. And, and it is true that then, I mean, the, the, and this is the other problem with sociology and statistics in general, right? Is that when we look at the stats, we can agree on them, but then there are individual people who suffer them, mm-hmm. right? I don't think you can stop change or technological innovation yeah. for the individual people who will suffer in the transition. I mean, but perhaps if we didn't romanticize a way of life so much mm-hmm. so that people could feel more innovative themselves yeah. so that when things change, embracing change and seeing where that could take you might also be something positive. I mean, right now we act as though this way of life needs to be preserved mm. and maybe there's something wrong with thinking that way. Yeah. I mean, not that you want to take it away, yeah. but if it has to change or whatever, maybe that's just the nature of the world yeah. and that we need to be a little bit less protective and sort of paternalistic about 
protecting that sort of certainly but i think that then you also need to be thinking about in which way you're going to help with the transition right exactly how are you going to train people are you going because this is a thing that with argentina now is that a, a lot of people and this is growing is that a lot of people are trying to think into uh, growing with agroecological methods which is a true and tested way to grow food in a sufficient way mm-hmm. that doesn't uh, harm right but then how do you get land how do you get seeds how do you pay for labor like you need to be giving credit right right for all those things i mean and same here same thing here in the united states right like how do you move towards organic farming for example if you're not giving credit for all that how okay so then then you're thinking okay we need to restructure the usda we need to restructure subsidies to corn and soy but then what happens to the farms i mean Right, except that so often the farmers are really big agriculture mm-hmm. and not individual farmers who are simply laborers, basically. Certainly. So and then you're thinking, now now what you need to do is rethink lobbying mechanisms. Right. So right. then it's not about food anymore. I mean, it becomes, so then it becomes quite complex. Yes, uh, yes. Mm-hmm. That's what I love about it. <laughs> that it's just total chaos. <laughs> And all we're doing is trying to order the chaos Mm -hmm. because I actually think underlying it all is chaos. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's why people like to cook because Mm -hmm. they're structuring something, you know. And you can serve something at the end. That's right. There's a product. Uh Yes. Yes. (laughs) And it also tastes good. Exactly. And you can share. Yes. Yeah, there are good things about Mm -hmm. food for sure. Certainly. (laughs) (laughs) But... It also, it keeps university professors employed. Certainly. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I mean, it is, it is incredibly complex. And I think it's very refreshing to talk about the complexity of it and that it's not simple because I believe also that especially the kind of messianic activists, they just have this single-mindedness mm. and they don't see it as complex they see it as very simple yeah. and i think i think all of that is necessary too right at some point um i think that at some point if you are embracing the activism then you need to have your 10 points that this one needs to happen and this were demanded because then if then if it is complex then you don't know what you're asking for and then people in power, then they don't have to reply to you because you don't really know what you want. Uh-huh. Uh, but I think that this is why, I mean, there are different audiences that we're talking to and different, and, and, and one of those, at least for me, is the audience that keeps me employed. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it is, a, we are, we are, I'm also trying to talk to the administrators at the university, my colleagues, uh, in my field, in my discipline, so to have an engaging conversation. And, and honestly, and this is something that I would like to look into uh, for what comes next is, okay, what's next? Like, how does this translate into policy? Because I truly felt when I left, finished the book, with like, uh, uh, there's nothing to do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, or this is just too big. Uh-huh. Or, and particularly, I mean, now in Argentina, it's a, terrible economic crisis i mean the pandemic foreign debt 
this is the last of the problems. I mean, right, and right. the solution cannot be if soybeans is the main thing that brings uh, money into the country. Pretending that you can take it away, it's just right. It's not realistic it's at all. It's not realistic. I mm-hmm. mean, it's a great idea, but it's just not realistic. Uh, there might be moments of opportunity, like for example, what you were saying about uh, the oil business here in 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 Louisiana. Well, now with the pandemic, that everything stopped. I mean, there's a huge window of opportunity now. Prices are tanked. We there is room, right? Right. Uh, but with soybeans in Argentina right now, mm-mm. yeah. So, but hopefully, I'll have some policy um, remarks, or at least try, I, I, I'm. I don't know how to think about policy, and that's something that I want to learn. Has anybody in Argentina did this book come out in Spanish and in English, or just in no, English? No, I'm working on the translation. Now. Okay. Yes. Because I would love to see what kind of reaction there is in Argentina when the book comes out in Spanish. <laughs> Do you have a Spanish publisher? I'm working on it. Spanish language publisher. Yes, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm talking with the publishers in Argentina, but guess what? COVID. Of course. Everything, yes, so yes. I'm working yeah. on it. Yes. <laughs> but I'm trying, I'm sharing the book in English and people have been very supportive and very much interested. And the most fascinating thing, as I have presented the book, is that particularly the stories about the silences of around agrochemicals, mm-hmm. is that I had had people be like, oh my God, that's my town. Not really, but I'm glad to know that that is also happening in your town, that there are people who are really worried about the health hazards of this, and they are whispering, they are commenting, but then they silence and they deny, then they don't do anything. And my concern as I was writing this book is that because I only experience this in one town, is is this happening somewhere else? Mm-hmm. And I'm hearing that, yes, it is. It is. Um, so I'm really looking forward to translating the book so that people can start talking about it. Right. Well, thank you so much, Amalia, for coming. I've really enjoyed this conversation. You're very welcome, Liz. I really enjoyed it, too. (laughs) Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue. We come to you from the Camellia Bean Studio at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, part of the Nitty Grits Network. For more information on today's podcast, join the Tip of the Tongue podcast group on Facebook. Please come by when you're in New Orleans and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like it, let us know in the comments. This is Liz Williams.